To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. We like to appeal to credentials, or we like it when people appeal to credentials. Sometimes that takes the form of a college degree, or life experience, or life achievements. We demand to see other people's credentials before we, take their, before we take into consideration their opinions about something going on in our world. If I was to tell you what it was that you should be feeding your dog, you would say, what gives you the right? And I would say, well, because I'm a veterinarian. I'm not actually a veterinarian, but I might say something along the lines, well, because I'm a veterinarian. And then the person would be like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, I'll take that into consideration. I had a friend in college who had an opportunity to do some color commentary for his former high school football team. And as he was doing the color commentary, there, in the weather forecast, there was, a, uh, there was rain predicted. But when it came to game time, he, uh, he noticed that the weather was clear and it was a beautiful night for football. And so what he said on air was, well, I'm no meteorologist, but the weather looks pretty good tonight. Of course, being college dudes, we, we never let it go. We immediately uh, began, pulled the clip from the internet, and uh, we played it back to him time and time again. And before everything that we said, for probably a solid six months, we would say, I'm no meteorologist, but, and it seems like we should go get some Taco Bell right now. Or, I'm no meteorologist, but your car is making some weird noises. And we just, we, we just didn't drop it. It was wonderful. It was just the best of times. In the same vein, if we think about people's credentials and that we want to, uh, we want to go to them and, and say, why, should, why is it that I should respect your opinion or consider your opinion when making my own decisions? Another thing that we oftentimes do or must take into consideration is that people rarely compare or re- people rarely consider your opinions if you're a jerk. It's just the reality of things. You've heard the adage, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's certainly true. If your credentials are in place, if I say, oh, I'm a veterinarian, but then I go ahead and maybe kick your dog, you're not going to listen to me when I tell you what you should feed your dog. Plain and simple. As we think about Psalm 123, we see the psalmist appealing to credentials. We see the psalmist appeal to credentials. But it's interesting that it's not the credentials of himself that he appeals to, but the credentials of God. This is how this psalm structures itself and how many of these psalms ascent even introduce uh, their ideas to us is by considering what it is, considering it what it is or who God is first and then building their arguments based on who God is and not necessarily who the psalmist is. The psalmist's request for mercy here comes at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, but the first half of verse 2 or even the first three quarters of verse 2 and verse 1 are all an appeal to God as king. So there's a clear understanding of the psalmist's position and his relationship to God. That's where the psalmist 
begins. So again, this is a psalm of lament, much like we saw in Psalm 120. It's not a happy-go-lucky psalm. It's a frustrated psalm. It's a cry for mercy at the hands of those who are oppressing the psalmist. But at the same time, as as the psalmist cries for mercy from God, he appeals first to God's character and not to his own. So three things I think that we want to touch on this morning as we consider Psalm 123. Three things. First, simply this, our position relative to God. What is our position relative to God? We see that in the first couple of verses. The second thing we're going to explore is our desire that we should have for God and for his mercy. And then the final thing is the worldly ease and pride that we reject. So we'll take those things in turn this morning. The first one, the first one is uh, our position relative to God. And again, verse one, very consistent with the Psalms of Ascent that we've looked at so far. We see, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. A lifting up of the eyes. It naturally suggests that to which the psalmist is looking is above him, is above him. The second line explains that God is not just above us physically, but he's above us in status as well. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. He's enthroned. He's king. He's immovably there in that position. That's where he is. And the rest of the psalm unfolds from here. So those other two points that we talked about that we'll get to in a few minutes, the desire we should have for God and his mercy, and also the worldly ease and pride we reject, they flow from the understanding that God is enthroned in his proper place up above us, physically and in status. The kingly status of God is the only way that any of this psalm makes sense only way that any of this psalm makes sense. The one who is in control over all things, who is sovereign over them, he is the one that we look to. The psalmist is not a humanist. The humanist believes that, that, that every problem, everything that we have in this world begins and ends with the individual. The psalmist isn't there because he begins with God. He starts there. We reject that notion The psalmist rejects that notion out of the gate. He doesn't begin with his problem. Again, note, his problem doesn't come to the end of verse 2. He doesn't even begin to unpack his problem for us until the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. He begins with God. And when mercy is what is needed, the psalmist doesn't look to his left or to his right or down. He looks up. He looks up. So we have to ask ourselves immediately out of the gate, do we look up like the psalmist? Are we looking up like the psalmist? And answering that question tells us a whole lot about what we believe about who God is. Is our God weak and frail? Is our God small? Does God ignore our problems? The answer is no. Isaiah 59.1 says it like this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God's reach extends everywhere. God's ear is sharp. It always hears your cry. And friends, the, the encouragement that comes out of verse 1 comes with the fact that God is enthroned over all things. 
It's a simple idea, but when we actually try to get our heads around it, it becomes much more difficult. Because oftentimes, our biggest problem is that most of the time, we don't think that includes us. We think that our problems, we think that the things that we're going through fall outside of God's purview. You know in the Lion King where Simba and Mufasa go up to the top of Pride Rock? You, you know the Lion King? Everybody, everybody's seen the Lion King, right? Okay, good. I'm not letting you reply. Go up to the top of Pride Rock, and they look out, and, and Mufasa tells Simba, everything that the light touches is our kingdom. You know that part. And Simba immediately looks and sees a shadowy area, and he says, what about that shadowy area over there? And Mufasa says, no, that's not part of our kingdom. Don't go there. And of course, Simba does, because if you have children, you know that that's exactly what he's going to do. And you're like, oh, man, there we go. There's maybe some foreshadowing, but okay, sorry, dad jokes. <laughs> but the point is this, there are no shadowy areas in God's kingdom. There are no shadowy areas where it looks out upon Everything that exists, all of creation, there are no shadowy areas that fall outside of God's purview. Everything, every molecule, every hair on your head, every grain of sand, every star, everything is in his jurisdiction. It's in his kingdom. It's under his purview. It's in his control. God is never surprised, nor is he ever limited. He cannot be challenged. Everything that is true of your life right now is within God's purview. It's within his control. Many of us regularly launch these small-scale assaults on God by claiming that his kingly rule doesn't extend to our issue or our circumstance or who we are, you name it. But the reality is this psalm sets it up and it says that it absolutely does. God's, he's enthroned in the heavens over all things. And so the psalmist lifts his eyes above earthly things to the heavens. I'm convinced that one of our primary challenges that we face in our culture is the amount of control that we have. We have a ton of control compared to the rest of human history. We have a ton of control over everything. I can control the temperature of my house. I can't control the temperature here. I'm sorry. But I, can't, I, I can control the temperature of my house down to a, a degree. And I can keep it there for quite some time. Thermostat. It's a good friend of mine. We can quickly move from one place to the next in our world with that little resistance. It doesn't take long to drive 100 miles or fly across the country. We can change our career. We have tons of information about our bodies and what's going on inside of them. And when we get sick, a diagnosis and some chemistry will help us get well. We have a lot of control, more control than probably ever in human history. And so a lot of times the solution appears to be right at our fingertips, but, but our control is, friends, an illusion. Last night at the dinner table, Tev, our three-year-old, asked me, when we have community group in our house, yeah, he asked me, he said, who's in charge of the kids? And Abel immediately said, I'm in charge of the kids because I'm the oldest. 
which is, oh, okay, cool. Like, I mean, but then we, we, continued, to, we continued to talk about that. And I said, and then, and then Tev said, who's in charge of our family? And I said, well, well I am. And he said, well, why? And, I, and he said, because God gave you to me to steward. And to, we've been talking about stewardship a lot. Well, God gave you to me to steward and to shepherd you and to lead you. And I will be responsible for, for, for the way that this family, the, the shape that this takes. And Tev, and Tev immediately said to that, this is like, okay, this blows my mind. He immediately said to that, he said, God's not in charge, I am. Like with that level of like, and then like 15 seconds later, he fell out of his chair, proving it to be absolutely false. Just, just like fell out of his chair. And I was like, you can't even control your seatedness. What, what are you talking about? And so that naturally led to a few more conversations about God. And that, but the reality is, while he is unabashedly opposed to the idea that God is in control of his life, that represents us the majority of the time. We're just much more subtle about it. We just, we just think, uh, we say, no, 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 I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in charge. And the reality is that oftentimes, or all of the time, it's a complete mirage. Well, it may seem that we're enthroned over the temperature of our house. We're not. It's ultimately God who is. There's one simple way that's apparent, and one simple way that all of this is apparent. It's our inability to control time. Everything in our world is decaying, is breaking down. Our bodies, everything in this room is, is subject to decay. We are all breaking down. And while I can control the temperature of our apartment and is subject to the, it's still subject to the breakdown and decay. The average life of a furnace is 15 years. You may be able to squeeze 20 or 25 or even 30 years out of a furnace. But its end is coming. And so we think we can control our life and our surroundings and our problems but our life, and our life circumstances, but we can't. But there is one who is in control, one who is enthroned in the heavens, who is enthroned over all things, and it is God. And so we lift our eyes up, and we look to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. And like the psalmist appeals to God's credentials, not his own, we appeal to God's credentials, not our own. He doesn't say, the psalmist doesn't say, give me mercy based on all the good things that I've done. He says, give me mercy based on who you are. It is ridiculous to say, give me mercy based on all the good things I've done. We must look so silly, stumbling around, demanding things from God, pretending to be in control. Well, in reality, we're just falling out of our chair. We don't appeal to our own credentials. We appeal for God to act based on his. Psalm 86.15 tells us that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so then we see, this moves us into the next point, so then we see the desire we should have for God and his mercy. Again, God shows mercy, but even more than that, the, waste, the place from which that flows is his merciful character. Have mercy upon us, God, because you are merciful, because you are a merciful king. 
Not have mercy upon us, God, because we are worthy recipients. No, glory and honor are to God and to him alone when his character is on display. We are the creature. He is the creator. We are the subject. He is the king. We are the servants. He is our master. Servants and subjects don't appeal to their worthiness. Servants and subjects appeal to the worthiness of their superiors. As a servant approaching his master, as a maid servant or a maid servant approaching her mistress, we understand that it is the one who is above us who can extend to us all that we need. And so this moves us to see the desire that comes out for the psalmist, for God in this in the psalmist to God and for his mercy. Our desire for God comes through a recognition of his of him as our source of mercy. There is a funny thing about a desire or a longing. It's for something that hasn't already been fully realized, something that hasn't already come about. It's something that is future tense. It's not the current reality. Something that we don't already have. The very last part, look at the last line, right? Till he has mercy upon us. That assumes that right now, in this very moment, the fullest extent of mercy has not been expressed to us or to the psalmist. His eyes looking to the Lord until he has mercy. Now, mercy, when we think about it, mercy can be described as not getting what we rightly deserve in like a negative sense, in a punishment type sense. Not getting what we deserve. If you deserve to be punished for an action, mercy is not receiving that negative consequence which is deserved or due or the reduction of that consequence. But again, the psalmist is calling out to God and acknowledging his position before God, asking for mercy that has not already been extended. So in Christ... We think about where we sit this morning. In Christ, you and I, if we've received, we've repented from our sins and put our faith in Jesus uh, to restore right relationship with God, if we're in that position, we are in fact forgiven. That's where we stand. We are forgiven. Our sins are removed from us. Our guilt is taken away. This is the result of Jesus' life and his sacrificial death, the shedding of his blood. Remission or the forgiveness of sin is now granted to all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. However, however, because we still live in a world that is directly affected by sin, the consequences of our sin in a worldly sense are still in play. And this is where the psalmist finds himself, firmly embedded among the people of God, and yet still subject to the effects of sin in the world. So, if you treat someone poorly, the consequence of treating someone poorly is damaged trust, and then there has to be a rebuilding process of that trust. And now we may repent of that in turn and be forgiven by God and by that other person, but the consequences don't immediately go away. As much as we would love that they will, they immediately don't go away. And in some instances, which would seem to be the psalmist case here, especially as we look at verses three and four, seem to be the psalmist case, the reality is that the sin around him creates some collateral damage. 
And this creates a desire for the psalmist that the effects of sin would be reduced, that they'd be removed, that they'd be, that they'd be, uh, that they'd be mitigated. These effects of sin that are so prevalent, he wants them to be taken away. Will these effects of sin be removed? But the psalmist knows, and the thrust of the whole psalm is that unless God acts according to his merciful character, these things will not be taken away or removed. And so maybe you're here this morning, you're looking at the psalm, and it's like, what does this have to do with me? And maybe, maybe you're just simply dealing with a, a problem or a consequence of a, a, a sin from your past. Or maybe it's a situation that you found yourself in that's made your life in particular difficult because of the lingering effects or negative effects of sin of yourself or someone else. The, the admonition, the encouragement that comes from this psalm is that God is your source of mercy. God is your source. The only way that the effects of sin will go away is when our compassionate king decrees that they will. But in the meantime, don't despair. God is working for your good. He's using these things. Cling to that promise. I love what Calvin writes about this. He says, God purposely disarms us and strips of us of all worldly aid that we may learn to rely on, upon his grace and be contented with it alone. Hmm. If you are in the midst of difficulty because of the sin that you've committed or the sin of another, uh, in your past or in your present, and you've been deeply affected by that sin of another person, friends, if you're in Christ, God is working for your good. But God is stripping you and disarming you and removing these things from you so that you might cling to the promise that he is, in fact, good. The reason, for, the reason as people, it's so hard oftentimes for us to forgive is because we haven't grappled with the depth of our own sin. Let me say that again. The reason it's so difficult for us as people oftentimes to forgive is because we haven't grappled with the depths of our own sin and what it meant for God to extend forgiveness to us. Oftentimes we think this. There is, no, there is a sin or sins or category of sin that I'm incapable of. You see someone do something and you say, I would never have done that. And that line of thinking leads to, I've been wronged, I'm the victim here. And you feel like you've been wronged or you thought this person did that thing to me and I'm pain because of it. I would never do that to them. If that's your response, consider that very carefully against the light that this psalm sheds on us as God as our source of mercy and not our own human activity. Look at it in light of this psalm that response and repent of it. We tend to believe that we are incapable of truly heinous sin, and yet that's not what all Scripture tells us. Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul goes on and he pieces together these passages from the Old Testament. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and the paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And when we have not wrestled with the depth of our own sin, forgiveness, friends, becomes really, really, really difficult. It becomes really difficult. God's forgiveness came to you. You must understand this. God's forgiveness came to you and his mercy was extended to you, not because it was deserved on your behalf, not because your sin was less than another person's, but because God decided to glorify himself through making a dead thing alive. A great deception is that we were only mostly dead, not completely dead, half dead, or something like that when we were saved. We said, oh, man, I wasn't that bad, or I wasn't doing this or that, or I did some okay stuff too, you know. Now you're dead. The Bible is very clear. Dead things do no good and can offer no good to the one who gives life. And so you're in a position where you're suffering the consequences of sin, Know that God is working for your good by stripping all things that you may be tempted to trust in other than him. And if you find yourself pointing the finger at other people around you regularly, when the consequences of sin roll in, remember this. While someone else's sin may have more immediate consequences in this life, and those consequences may even affect you, your sin well, the consequences in this life may be lesser in the here and now had just as much ability to separate you from God for all of eternity. This understanding leads us to be merciful, to forgive those who wrong us. This understanding of the immensity and the depth of the forgiveness that was extended to us in Christ Jesus gives us the ability to forgive freely. And now those consequences again may linger. But the truth is that God made a dead thing alive and his forgiveness, his mercy has no limits. So don't make this mistake. The gospel frees us from comparison. Whether it's our tendency to dive in and to say, I'm not that bad. I'm not going to do that thing. I'm never going to engage in that way. The gospel frees us from comparison because it immediately puts us on the same level as everyone else prior to Christ, and that's dead in our transgressions and sins. We are in the same boat. And the reason we were made alive was not because we didn't sin in a particular way or, or in a particular fashion, but because God acted on our behalf according to his nature, Psalm 86, 15, according to his merciful and gracious, because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He acted on our behalf according to his character. And so that leads us then to our last consideration this morning. Look at verse 4. The worldly ease and pride that we reject, right? We see the scorn of those, it says, our soul has had more than enough. Of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. This is inc incredibly relatable. This is incredibly relatable in our context where, for the most part, we're at ease. The world is full of people who are at ease, who have been blinded by false gods, money and material and sex and food and drink and you name it, whatever it is. Their life situation, oftentimes to those who are in Christ, seems pretty awesome. 
They've got a lot going. This last week, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, uh, an NFL running back by the name of Todd Gurley just got a $60 million contract. That's a pretty big contract for an NFL running back. I think like $48 million of that was guaranteed or something like that, which just doesn't happen. It's a four-year deal. Um, it's, a, it's a huge, huge contract. And after he signed that contract, he's quoted as saying this, whoever said money don't make you happy lied. Terrible grammar aside, (laughs) terrible grammar aside, that's an amount of money that most of us can't get our heads around. But I think subtly, somewhere inside of us, we think, yeah, that's right. Wow, the comforts that much money brings, I wouldn't mind that. And while Todd Gurley isn't going to walk through their front door and wave a wad of cash under your where we think about contempt, right, or the scorn. He's not going to come and scorn you with his cash. Maybe, I don't know. His attitude in that statement tells us, it says to us, get rich and you'll be at ease. Get rich and you'll be at ease. And again, many of us, internally, in your heart, that's, that's right. The reality is that the ease that Todd Gurley is experiencing with the $60 million contract is a mirage. It is temporary. It's not going to last. Like every other NFL running back in human history, his body will break down. And just because his name is at the top of the list in your your fantasy football draft, in 10 years, his name won't come out of people's mouths nearly as often as it is today. In 10 years, very few people will care. And so as we look at that, we should welcome being stripped of everything that would promise to remove the consequences of sin in our life, except God himself. The temporary comforts, the the ease that this life promises simply can't hold up. To rely on them is what the psalmist says, contempt. Those people who assume that the, the comforts of this life can offer ease, that's pride. Why? Because your king says he's the only reliable source of mercy, of grace, and anything else that you need. And to rely on anything other than him is to deny that truth. So as we wrap up our time this morning and think about a couple of things and just ask a couple of questions. We see a progression here, right? And we'll work sort of backwards back up through the text. Question. When we see the ease of those in the world, the people who have lots of things or whatever it is that you ascribe comfort to, people whose lives seem relatively easy, do we fall for the illusion? Do we fall for the illusion. If we do, we're saying something about who we believe God is. We're saying that his rule doesn't extend to our problems or situations, or we're saying that he isn't enthroned in the heavens, or we're saying that which, he can't, which we need can't or doesn't come from him. So we don't fall for the illusion. We don't look at the, the ease of the world or the things that the people of this world project and say, that is what is able to fulfill me 
Rather, we don't fall for the illusion that God isn't able to do all that he says he is able to do. The world will redirect that thought. That is not what the psalmist tells us. Rather, reject those things. It may result in scorn. It may result in frustration. It certainly will result in some inner turmoil. But the reality is those things can't offer what God can offer us. Second thing is this. Don't believe the lie that someone else's sin has separated them from God more than yours. Don't believe the lie that someone's sin has separated them from God more than yours. Again, we all start at the same level. Right outside of Christ, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only way that we are made alive is not through acting properly, not through doing something or seeking to accomplish something, but through the shed blood of Jesus that offers forgiveness of sins, freely offered up for us a perfect life, the death that we deserved, burial, resurrection, and a promise of new life in him. If you believe that your sin doesn't have the ability to separate you from God as much as someone else, then you believe that somehow you earned God's mercy and that the temporary is all that there is. Thirdly, this morning I would say this. God's merciful character and activity leads to the development of merciful character and the outflow of merciful activity in his children. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that Jesus clearly says in Matthew 6, 14, for, the, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Is this works-based forgiveness? No. But what it is indicating to us is that those who are forgiven, forgive. Those who have been shown mercy, show mercy. It is an outflow of God's merciful activity in us, not only to remove the effects of sin and remove the punishment that we deserve, but then to produce in us mercy and to produce in us a quickness to forgive. Those who understand the dire and eternal consequences of their sin and understand the infinite debt of sin they owed and yet still have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, those people are quick to forgive. Again, if we don't grapple with this idea, we will have a difficult time offering forgiveness because we'll be caught up comparing. Final thing that I would say this morning as well, while praying for mercy in a situation from God, whether it be the results of the consequences of your own sin or the sins of another um, in which you have become clouded, when praying for mercy to see those effects of sin uh, reduced or removed from you, appeal to what? To God's character and not to your own. Don't get caught up in I deserve this language, but get up, get caught up in God is merciful. His character is merciful. The Bible tells us that he is merciful and plead for him to act according to his character. And remember that God has very much so acted on your behalf. Is there a greater act of mercy than the gospel? No. The answer is no. God sent his son to die for you for your forgiveness to pay the infinite debt of sin that you owed. Is there a greater act of mercy than making a dead thing alive? The answer is no. 
or transferring someone off the road of destruction into the road that leads to life? Absolutely not. And it's all possible because of the work of Jesus, which flows out of God's merciful character. If God's character was not merciful, he would never have sent his son and we would remain dead. And so if you're in Christ this morning, the admonition is clear. Be quick to forgive and to love. Be quick to forgive and to love. Understand that there are earthly consequences to sin. Your king is enthroned above it, though. Your king is above all of it. Plead to God to see those effects reduced and long for a day when they will be removed entirely because, friends, if you are in Christ, they will be removed entirely. Every tear will be wiped away. But don't be blinded by the fact that before Christ, no one was better off than anyone else. And if you are here this morning, you have no idea what it means to be a Christian. If you think to yourself, man, what are you talking about? You are crazy. If that's your thought, understand that God's mercy is extended to you in Christ Jesus. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. When you begin to grapple and understand that, man, I need something. I am a sinful person. Where do I go? To what do I turn? The answer is Jesus Christ. You don't have to clean up your act and get to a certain point for his mercy to apply. But you do need to trust him for his mercy. And friends, when there are other things in this world that are offering mercy to you, you reject them outright. Friends, the king is enthroned. He is immovably there. And he offers you the mercy. He is the source of all, everything that you need. Let's pray.